Please remain standing as we continue worship with a reading from Luke 15, 1 through 10. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he lost, has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country, and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated once you say hello to someone. Good morning. How's everyone doing? Yeah, it's his birthday, and I'm kicking him off the stage. Hey, if I've not met you, I'm Chris. Nice to meet you. I am the lead teaching pastor here at Riverstone. If you have your Bibles, open them up to Luke 15. Uh, Mike read the beginning. Uh, he read 1 through 10, and I'm going to just pick up right where he left off, just so we were fully engaged when he read. I just want to remind you what happened when he read. Jesus is surrounded by tax collectors and sinners, and he tells this story <clears throat> about two individuals that lost things. Um, a man who lost his sheep. Um, and he goes out, leaves the 99, finds one very popular little passage there, and an, a woman who loses a coin and diligently searches the house until she finds the coin. And both of these people that Mike uh, read earlier, both of them have this refrain after every time they find what they're looking for. Did you catch it? It was repeated. I want to highly encourage you to pay special attention to repeated words and phrases in Scripture. Um, that is the way the author is getting his point across to you. Uh, the refrain that was over and over in the beginning was, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin I have lost. I found the sheep that was lost. So I'm going to pick it up in verse 11. <clears throat> and, he said to, and he said, being Jesus, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to the father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them, his two sons. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. There he squandered his property in reckless, some of you might have wild living in your Bibles, 14. Then when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against you, I'm sorry, against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Treat me like a slave. Let me pay off the debt of making you give me half of the inheritance. 
And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his friends, quickly bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fat calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. Now, his older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant and he said to him well your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound but he being the older brother was angry and refused to go in his father came out and entreated him but he answered his father look these many years I have served you. Your, your translation might say slaved for you. I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, uh, it's actually a more term of, it's my child, child, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for your, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, God, would you speak peace to our distracted, frantic hearts right now, God? Father, would you come and enable us to enter into your rest right now? Peace of the Holy Spirit. Be welcome in this place. Come, God. Open our eyes to the truth of Scripture, to the truth of who you are. We love you. And we pray these things. Amen. This parable, perhaps uh, more so than any parable of Jesus' teaching, is a startling invitation into the joy of God. That's been the invitation since day one. Enter into my joy, all you peoples of the earth. This parable so gets to the heart of God, the fundamental position of God towards humanity, it could be argued as the summary story of the entire scriptures. And here, in a way that only Jesus can do, he did it back then and he does it today, Jesus wants to correct bad thinking about who God is. What God does, what God rejoices in, what God pursues, what God gives his attention to, what his focus is, what his mission is. 
right? And Jesus paints the activity of heaven, the thing you're being invited into as a Christian. You guys, anyone a Christian in here? Anyone a Christian? Okay, so this is the thing that you're being invited into if you consider yourself a Christian. It's a feast, a banquet. Dude, it's killing the fat calf, not the skinny one, the fat one, right? Rejoicing with your neighbors in such a way that the whole neighborhood hears it, right? What does it mean to be a Christian, y'all? Like, what exactly is this thing we're getting called into? Jesus seems to think that to be a Christian is to say yes to the joy of God, to step into it. Dude, it's a party, y'all. The picture is a feast. In the Revelations, it's a feast. In Eden, it's a garden abundantly providing more than we could ever ask or imagine. God is inviting you into abundance, to joy, to restoration. That's the invitation of the gospel. It's, listen, it's the undercurrent of the entire ship. It's what carries it along, y'all. It's the joy of God. It's not guilt. It's not condemnation. It's not I got to get my junk together. It's the joy of God. It's a party. It's a feast. Now, does that mean there's no discomfort in a Christian life, Chris? Is that what you're saying? No, not at all. It does mean that the undercurrent, the overarching motivator that drives the ship, that pushes it through trials and suffering is an experience of the joy of God. It's an experience of the joy of God. What's the joy of God? What is it? What's the specific joy of God? What's the joy of God that the older brother couldn't see? What's the joy of God that religious people, for all their rules and orthodoxy, miss? Well, in this parable, it's the joy of finding something, actually someone, who has value. But for whatever reason, that value's been compromised. Value had been lost. The joy here is when the value is restored. You see, it was the inability to rejoice in value restored. Dignity restored, all right? Where it was thought it shouldn't belong. You see? The younger brother had lost value. He, would, he was compromised morally, socially, culturally. Let's just go ahead and throw politically in there for everyone, all right? Oh, we're not going to talk about that? Okay, here we go. You said nothing, so I'm going. In the cultural climate that we live in, we tend to devalue people who think differently political than you. Repent. Repent. In the name of Jesus, repent. This guy had lost value socially, culturally, morally, and it was the restoration of that value that the religious and the older brother could not rejoice in. They were barred out of it. The parable was in response to religious people grumbling. Now, I know it's shocking to you, right? So out of character. I know. Religious people, I mean, I know, right? I was, I was unheard, unheard of, right? right? That what, they, what, what, what were they complaining about? Well, it was Jesus. This guy, he receives sinners, not only receives them, bro, ate with them. For, dude, you don't eat with these kind of people. 
Jesus was receiving. And so in response to that, he tells this prayer. You see, for them, for the religious of the day, and for many of us today, Jesus was not acting in the way that valuable people act. Jesus was not acting in the way that put together people act. Valuable people, cool people, people in the cool crowd, those people sit in superiority over people who are not cool. All right? So the cool crowd, and you know how we affirm and establish and lift up the coolness of our crowd? We look down our nose at other people that aren't in the cool crowd. Right? And so when we get together, we talk about how stupid this person is and how dumb that person is, and aren't we so better? And then we leave feeling good, sort of. Right? We do it every day, guys. We affirm our value, we dehumanize and devalue the other, and we walk away feeling better about ourselves. We do it every day. People who have it together prove that they have it together by affirming the fact that they have it together. (laughs) And how do you affirm that? Well, you point out the people that don't have it together. Susie doesn't homeschool. (laughs) Oh, dude, that guy, he read this book from this author. Oh, it's heresy. 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 That's how you got to say it. I'm feeling real edgy today, guys. I'm sorry. I'm coming out strong. Okay, right? I mean, we get the point, right? And listen, just listen to the conversations at work tomorrow. I'd say about 75% of what we do when we talk to people is affirm the fact that me and you are in the crowd and that idiot's out of the crowd. See, Jesus was not acting in the way that the cool kids acted. He wasn't respecting the social. Respect the separation of the classes, Jesus! Right? Like, we want to be cool. You seem like you're cool. Let's be cool together and affirm the fact that those guys are riffraff. And Jesus was having none of it. Right? These people, sinners, tax collectors, they were ethnically, socially, politically, religiously degenerates. And the way Jesus, listen, the way the whole value system socially works is we have to tell each other that we're good. We're good. Me and you are good. And they're bad. And we have to affirm this over and over and over and over again so that we believe it. So that we're valuable and they are not valuable, right? We're better than them, Jesus. You should respect that, right? And our image and value is maintained by affirming it with others. Okay, now, now I understand this has zero relevance for today. This is like antiquated, you know, old, obviously we're more enlightened now, you know, in our common day, right? We don't, but for them, right, there were the valuable people, right? And they thought this way about that. And then there's those that we just, holy people, especially, here's look at the context. Jesus was a holy man, right? Rabbi, they called him rabbi, right? Jesus, look around, dude. Holy people don't eat with sinners. They don't receive them. No, no, no. Holy people Tell sinners what they need to do to fix themselves. See? Holy people don't eat with sinners. Sinners serve holy people because they're sinners. And they serve us because we got it together. And when Jesus, who I believe, I don't know if you believe it, who I believe was God incarnate, when he comes into conflict with that kind of thinking, 
When he comes into conflict with that kind of value system of what it means to have together and what it means to prove to everyone else that you have it together, he tells these stories. All right? To a group of people who had lost all connection to the joy of God. Hmm? Jesus, first of all, Jesus is brilliant. I don't know if you think Jesus is a smart person, but if you don't, I would imagine it's hard for you to listen to him. Jesus is brilliant. The first thing he does is he wants them to remember what joy is like. So he doesn't go for the jugular first. He says, let's, he appeals to them on the basis of delight. Guys, this is huge. Jesus appeals to them on the basis of joy. So he says, you know, you guys can probably relate to this. This is agricultural society, agrarian society. Let's say a guy loses a sheep. Is a sheep valuable? Oh, yeah, well, sheep's valuable. Oh, sheep's valuable. Yeah. Let's say a guy loses a sheep. Well, doesn't he? He's going to leave the 99 to go because a sheep's valuable. Is a sheep valuable? Yeah, sheep's valuable. Yeah, he leaves the go to school. What about it? Oh, dude, money. Who doesn't think money's valuable? A coin. He's appealing to them on the basis of joy. And then you find something that's valuable. Do you rejoice? They say, yes, of course. The neighborhood rejoices. Rejoice with me. Everyone understands that. And then he goes in for the jugular. And then he turns up the pressure of 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 a social value system where we devalue people. He turns up the pressure on the value system. You understand what I'm saying? The way in which we believe and understand people are valuable. He wants to burn that to shreds. All right? So he says, Jesus knew these guys, for whatever reason, could not see the value in certain people. He knew these guys couldn't see certain people the way God saw them. And so he launches into this story. And he, and he deals with a blindness that lodges itself right in the center of our religious life. God, he was brilliant. Okay. For them, sinners, tax collectors, the whole cultural context of tax collectors, they, they were betrayers. Absolutely betrayers. They, they were scum of the earth, tax collectors, okay? Sinners, we get that, right? Therefore, Jesus' actions is, is just confusing to them. He's upsetting this entire value system, and it's the value system that had established them on top. And so, of course, there was aggression and confrontation when Jesus begins to ups, upset the cart, right? And after this simple attempt to, to remind them, hey, this is what simple joy is like, you guys remember Simple Joy? All right, now turns up the pressure. Story of two sons. We got to do a little cultural context for the stories of these two sons to feel the weight of the story. You guys with me? Okay, two people. Awesome. In our day, a son leaving home for adventure and exploration is totally applauded, right? Like, get out of here, bud. Good luck, right? In a first century farm-based community, farm-based community, it would have been seen as a betrayal to the family. It was fully expected for every son to continue the family business for the stability of the estate. Um, But it's not that just, he he doesn't just leave, y'all. He doesn't just leave. It's that he tells his father he wants his inheritance. Now, again, something that's a little bit lost on us as a culture, right? Um, 
This would have been, I mean, we can somewhat understand inheritance, right? You have two kids, you split it up between them, whatever. Um, But the younger son tells his father, if you would have died today, I want all the goodies that I would get. He basically calls his dad dead to his face. So, okay, there's that. But then his entire family would have been dramatically affected by this decision because the father would have sold, had to have sold a portion of the estate, of the entire estate, a portion of the land, a portion of all his wealth, a portion of all, you know, dude, his collective wealth. He had to split it in half and give it to this kid, right? The son basically said, I I want you dead, but I really do want your stuff. I don't really care about you as a person, dad. However, you're very wealthy. So I would love the provisions that you would, I would get if you were dead. Uh, The father should have slapped him in the face right there and then. And the crowd thinks the same thing. So already they're affronted by this. This is not right. The father is a pushover and a coward. He should have slapped his son in the face and said, get back to work, scoundrel. And they would have said, that's right, right? So not only does the father not retaliate or punish or threat like I would, my little boy came to me and said that, right? He completely yields to the son's request. If you tell God that you do not love him, but you love his stuff, he will say, okay. The father says, okay. This would have, this, again, gasps in the audience. What? Right? And then the son gets as far away from the father as he can. Impressively spends the entire inheritance on reckless living. And then a famine hits. The son finds himself in unfamiliar territory, far away from land, in exile. No money, no home, no family. Forced to find the only work he can, which is feeding pigs in fields. This is not only physically dirty, gross for us. I mean, that's disgusting, right? I don't want to make pigs. I don't want to touch a pig, feed a pig. No, thanks. All right, so there's that level. But for them, a Jew, a little thing called kosher, (laughs) okay? So this is not only physically dirty, this is spiritually, morally dirty, okay? This is ceremonially, religiously abominable, okay? Those listening would have scowled instinctually, working with pigs? Much less. I mean, Jesus keeps pressing, keeps pressing, longing to eat the pig's food. For a Jew, there is no lower representation of spiritual and relational barrenness. I mean, if the kid crossed the line, he crossed it five times over with the first suggestion of wanting the inheritance. This entire thing is vulgar. It's offensive. And he finds himself exiled. His family hates him. He's in a foreign land amongst pagans, forced to do something that makes him even more devalued as a person. Plenty of us can relate to finding ourselves in situations where we say the things like this, "I, I, I had to do it. I had no other choice. They forced my hand. I didn't want to sin. I didn't want to do the thing I know is not right, but I had no other choice. And this is exactly where he finds himself, right? I don't know if we can fully grasp the social condemnation that every person in the audience would have felt towards the son in the moment. Most of the people in the audience would have said, Jesus is a holy teacher. I know what he's doing. You know what's going to happen? That kid's going to get sick and they're going to stone him to death or something. He's going to die a miserable death. And we're going to say, that's right. There's the lesson. Moral lesson, right? Don't be a jerk. That's the lesson, I guess, right? (laughs) And they would have said, good thing we're not an idiot like that guy, right? 
there's, there's just not a social moral equivalent that I could find that wasn't like utterly offensive and crude, right? This would have been deeply disturbing to any Jew. Jesus, what is he doing? What is Jesus doing here? Jesus is making it impossible to defend the boy. He's making it impossible to defend him. It's completely unexcusable, five times over, right? His actions are grotesque. They're beyond excuse, ethically, socially, morally wrong at every step, right? But Jesus says, this is interesting how the narrative turns a second. All of a sudden, you're kind of getting the story. And then Jesus puts us in the son's mind. He puts us in the reasoning of the son. He puts you in the younger son's shoes. And he says, he said to himself, or he said, uh, he, he, I'm sorry, at first says he came to himself, which is a fascinating turn of phrase, which now is pretty common to us, right? Came to himself. As if a part of himself had been lost in the process. And then it turns to inside the younger, shoe, uh, the younger son's shoes. Jesus kind of puts you in his shoes. And he, he tells you his thinking. He's thinking, my, my, my dad, my dad, his slaves live better than this. Right? Like I would live off the crumbs of the slave's table better than how I'm living now. And you get that. No one was giving him any food. That's what it says. Zero compassion. Zero mercy. Completely exiled. And no one's being kind to him. Right? So ashamed and regretful and completely abased, completely defeated, he starts this long, humiliating journey back home. And I like to use my imagination. And I like to imagine that as he's walking... I mean, we know that he would have to potentially walk back the path that got him there. I just like to think as he's walking, he sees that place where that happened and that party where he did that one thing and that place where he spent so much money that was just totally egregious and oh, wow. And every step of the way is this kind of grinding of his guilt into his mind. I could be wrong, but you can imagine it, right? And so he's rehearsing this speech Obviously, he wouldn't ask to be restored as a son. That's ridiculous. <laughs> After what he's done? No, no. He'll ask to be restored as a slave. Make me a slave, Dad. Let me earn back all of the money that I've cost you. Like, it would have been impossible. It would have been impossible. No day laborer could give that kind of wealth for his, right? I mean, come on. So he's basically saying, maybe he'll forgive me, but I'm going to ask this ridiculous position. Let me earn it back. Let me pay for my way back, Dad. That's what he's going to ask, right? Um, What the son is sure of is that his place as a son has been forfeit. That's the only thing he was really sure of, is that my place as a son has been forfeit, right? Uh, Been completely disqualified. Um, Some of you in this room right now are really only sure of that in your religious life. You come to church, the, the laws and the rules are given to you, and all that you're really confident of is you're disqualified, right? Don't know much about God, don't know much about grace or the cross, but what I do know is I've failed too much and too often. A lot of us can relate to this boy, right? Sure, you hang out with Christians, sure, you grew up in church, you know, but if you're honest, all of your efforts in church and in volunteering are really trying to silence the voice in your head that says this, you don't belong. For so many of us, all of our religious efforts are trying to silence the voice in our head that says, you will never get your hands clean. 
And we think, well, actually, if I try harder, I probably could. Maybe if I volunteer, maybe if I give, you know, maybe, maybe if I, and the harder we try, often the voice just gets louder. You're disqualified when it comes to faith, right? Some people, the only thing they know for sure is that they're miserable and they don't really know why. And well, maybe, maybe they probably do. They probably deserve it, right? The son didn't know if the father would forgive him. Uh, but what also he didn't know <laughs> is since the day he left, the father had been scanning the horizon for him. How? How can I say that? Well, uh, how else would the father see him a long way off? The father is the first to see him. The text is clear. Well, he was a long way off. The father saw him and felt compassion and ran. Some say the story should really be called the prodigal father because the father does things that no father should do, especially culturally. He runs. All right, patriarchs didn't run, right? You don't value and restore a backstabbing little twerp, you know? No, he needs to grovel some, you know? He needs, but his father runs to him, right? Uh, the father completely ignores social norms. In fact, the, he doesn't even let the kid get the speech out. Kid's got this whole great rehearsed speech. Father completely ignores him, interrupts him halfway through the speech, doesn't even let him grovel, right? I mean, most of us think repentance is this thing that if we grovel enough, if we really show that like, oh, I really messed it up, and maybe God, God he interrupts it. In this story, the joy of the father overwhelms the guilt of sin. That's what happens here. The joy of the father overwhelms and overrules the guilt of sin. Dude, as oppressive and heavy as that guilt surely was on that young kid's neck, it melts in the father's love, right? I don't know if you can ever relate to being so overwhelmed of your own guilt and sin that you feel forever disqualified, but I most certainly can, right? And being a Christian does not mean you don't go through difficult, heart-shattering things, some of which will be your own fault. I, I want you to hear this phrase right now. While the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion to him and ran to him and kissed him. A lot of ands in there, isn't there? Ran, felt compassion, kissed, the kisses of God, when everyone, himself included, knew he deserved the wrath of God. If we don't walk away with the reality of this, we've missed the whole point of the parable. The kisses of God when we deserve the wrath of God. And maybe miss the point of why Jesus came at all, right? Today, I wonder if you have ears that can hear that God sees you. That God feels compassion for you. And that God is moving towards you. Do you have ears to hear it? I don't care what predicament you're in right now. I don't care the social, relational catastrophe that you are in. God sees you. He feels compassion for you, and he is moving towards you. This is the gospel. This is the foundation of our faith. <laughs> that when we deserve wrath, we're given kisses, y'all. Come on, man. No matter what reason you hold up as to why you can't be a child of God anymore, you have to understand this right now today. God sees you, he feels compassion towards you, and he's moving towards you, right? I think the main thrust of these parables that God, Jesus puts together is that the doors to the party of heaven have been flung open. 
Will you walk into it? The doors to the party of heaven have been open to any and all who would enter. But to show the expanse of that reality, okay? So let's say that's the point. I'm not saying I convince you that's the point. I'm saying that's what I think is the point, okay? That the doors to the party of heaven have been open to any and all, okay? But to show the expanse of that reality, what that means and its nuance and its complexity, the story doesn't end there, does it? No. Jesus tells another brother, an older brother, and we'll be quicker with this guy, okay? What we have in an older brother is someone who does not enter into the party of heaven. He doesn't enter into the joy of heaven. Um, why not? Why doesn't the brother, older brother, enter into the, the, the feast is a, par- is a picture of heaven? Can we agree on that? Do we think that? Okay, so the feast is a picture of heaven. And here we have someone who does not go into heaven, not because an angel with a flaming sword is standing on the outside, but because of self-choice. He doesn't enter into joy, not because of the wrath of God. He, enters, he doesn't enter into joy because he doesn't want to. That's fascinating, isn't it? Right? In fact, to put a fine point on it, to put a fine point on why the older brother doesn't go in to the feast, um, what are the things that the older brother holds up as to why he won't go in? Do you know what it is? It's his goodness. <laughs> Blow your brain today. The older brother holds up his goodness as to why he won't go into heaven. He says, I have served you, slaved is the real word. I have always obeyed you. Therefore, I will not enter into joy. What? We think we don't get into heaven because of our badness. Because we've done things wrong. And this boy doesn't get into heaven because of his goodness. <laughs> Is anyone else struggling with this? Am I the only one that's like, what is happening? Why? What's going on in this boy's mind and heart? He says, Dad, I deserve this party. I work for you. I always do the things you want me to do. And you've never given me even a goat. What is he saying? He's saying, I'm doing the right stuff. I'm doing all the right religious things. I'm going to church. I'm going to small group. Oh, God. A little small group. I didn't go to small group and my life's not working out. Anyone? What is he saying? He's saying, God, you owe me. He's saying, I'm doing all the right things and it's not working out. I deserve the party and you're wasting it on this kid who has squandered your real estate on prostitutes. In this moment, You have to understand what's happening. The older son takes on the mantle of the accuser. The older son becomes Satan in the story. Why? Because he reminds the father and the son of what? His sins. For the purpose of condemnation. Hey, let me just say, when you remind others of people's sins for the point of condemnation, you are doing the enemy's work for him. Can I just say to you, choose a side, bro. Choose a side. (laughs) When you are pointing out the sins of others in order to condemn them, you are doing the enemy's work for him. And this is exactly what the elder brother does. He says, I have worked hard 
He, he lets the cat out of the bag a little bit because he says that word, slaved. I've slaved for you. Now, this is so fascinating. Commentators point this out. One son comes back saying to the father, I don't deserve to be a son. Make me a slave. The other son, right, thinks he's a son, and yet, in the reality, because of the inner disposition of his heart, it reveals that he's actually a slave. The one son who admits that he's not a son anymore, that he says, make me a slave, the father makes him a son. The other, isn't this fascinating, dude? Dude, you gotta read the Bible, man. It'll blow your mind, right? What was the issue with the older son? What was the, what's the, well, it was all duty and no delight. Tim Keller says, all duty and no beauty. All duty and no beauty. Yeah. I think many of us can relate to that in our spiritual life. We're in the, we're in the fight. So you're in the fight. You're in the fight. You're doing the things. You're trying. But it's all duty and it's no beauty. It's no all. This was the reason the son's the elder son. This is what makes the elder son the elder son. Is that it was all duty and no delight. And Tim Keller points out, the younger son was alienated from the father because of his wrongdoing. The elder son was alienated from his father because of his right doing. And therefore, there are two ways of being lost. One by being very bad and the other by being very good. See, every one of us is desperate to establish one thing your value as a person. What makes me valuable? In uh, the story, Chariots of Fire, Harold Abrams is compared to Eric Little. Eric Little is the main figure. Eric says, when I run, I feel the pleasure of God. Harold, who's compared to Eric, says, when that gun goes off, I have 10 lonely seconds to justify my existence. Everybody is looking for something to justify their existence. Everybody's looking for something to give them value. Maybe it's how much money I make, the kind of car I drive, the kind of house I own, my parenting skills. Everyone's looking for something to make them valuable, to prove that they're valuable. And when we look to our social pedigree or to our wealth or to our skill or possession or even our religious efforts to make us valuable and secure us and justify us, we are no longer trusting Christ to justify us to secure us and to make us valuable. And if you happen to be really good at obeying the rules, if you can work the system, right, then any other system of assigning value becomes a threat, especially if it's given to someone without them earning it, right? The older brother says, I've done the right things. He's done the wrong things. I deserve the party. And when that value system was upset by mercy, what did it do to the son? It enraged him. The elder son is described as really one thing. Well, two things, really. Angry and superior. He was angry, and he claims that he is superior to the, the younger son. Now, get, get yourself in the older son's shoes for a second. Is that anger justified? Absolutely it is. Kid's a moron, right? It's totally justified, right? But notice the language. Uh, the older son uses. It's dehumanizing language. That son of yours. 
He devalues, he won't even claim ownership to him. It's, it's fascinating that the older brother will not claim ownership to the son. And yet the father, even in the face of the older brother's absolute arrogance and superiority and, and violence towards his brother, still calls him son. The father still calls the elder son, son. The, the older son calls the younger son, this son like, won't own him. The father still owns the older son. It's fascinating. In fact, it's the father that entreats them both. It's the father that goes out to both of them. And here we see God is not only interested in the outsiders, he's interested in the insiders too. God comes to us in our religious superiority and calls us, even in that midst, my child. It's the father who seeks out those on the outside and those on the inside. This story is so remarkable. It's so fascinating. Commentators also point out a comparison between Jesus and the younger son. The younger son was robed. Jesus was disrobed. The younger son has a ring put on his finger. It's a sign of sonship. Jesus has holes put in his hands. When the younger son cries out to the father, the door is opened. When Jesus cried out to the father, the door was shut. Jesus takes the punishment we deserve so that we can, be entered, we can enter into the father's love. It's right there. Jesus takes the weight of our moral guilt onto himself so that the door of heaven is not slammed shut in our face like we deserve it. No, instead, the door to heaven was slammed shut to, to Jesus. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Oh, so fascinating. Dude, so there's so much that can be said about this, right? There's so many other things that we could point out, like, for example, how what the elder son, the thing that marks his life is anger and frustration. There's a whole lot there you could think about. If your religious life is marked by anger and superiority, you may be an elder son. If you can't resist the tendency to point out moral failures in others, you might be the older son. You might be the elder brother, all right? If you are continually mad at God because you're doing the right things and life never tends to work out the way you want it, you might be the older brother. And the father comes out to them both and entreats them both, right? Richard Loveless says, let me give you this last quote and then we'll wrap it up. Um, Richard Loveless says, uh, when people are unsure of the love of God, when we have lost connection to the joy and the love of God that's on our lives, that he accepts us in Jesus apart from their spiritual accomplishments, people that dis get disconnected from that are subconsciously radically insecure persons. Their insecurity shows itself in pride, a fierce defensive assertion of their own righteousness, and defensive criticism of others. And this is exactly what we see in the older brother. He's angry, he's superior, he's defensive, and he's ruthlessly pointing out the sins of others, right? Both sons thought the love of the father was dependent on them. Right? And we get this wrong all the time. 
God's kindness towards you is not a reflection of you. It's a reflection of him. God doesn't love you because you are beautiful or worthy. He loves you because he is beautiful and worthy. This story, more than any other almost, helps us see that God's action in the earth is more of a reflection of his heart than yours. And this is true for us in relationships too. We often think when people give us compliments, it's like, oh, I must be awesome. Well, actually, most of the time, it's a, it's a reflection of the fact that they're really nice, generous people. <laughs> Maybe not the fact, I mean, people are going to focus on what they focus on, right? Plenty of people are not going to focus on that. Someone's focusing on that, give it to you. It's a reflection of them very often, right? Uh, but in reality, right, people, people are choosing that. So Jesus is helping, help, trying to help us see, y'all, today, that God's love towards us, his searching, diligent love moving towards you is not because of your goodness or your achievement. It's not because you happen to win in a particular value set, right, or you happen to lose. It's because uh, of his goodness towards you. This is the gospel, y'all, uh, that God has accepted you because of the rejection of Jesus. That's it. Let's stand and pray. I think there's so much, there's so much that we could sit with in this story. And I would so encourage you uh, to go back and read it for yourself and, and look at it in the text, okay? Um, but let me just give a couple um, categories that I thought God might be wanting to just deal with some of our hearts today. Um, if, if you feel that you are in a season of exile, whatever that might look like, um, your sense of home has been broken. Hmm? Uh, you look around upon relational or circumstantial um, situations that feel very sinister and alien and God doesn't seem to be around. Uh, maybe you find yourself today in a place you never thought you'd find yourself and it's striking at your sense of value as an individual. Uh, maybe you've never struggled with self-doubt and self-worth like you're struggling with it right now because of the situation you're in. Um, my heart for you today is that today, right now, you would, your heart would turn towards God. That you turn towards God, right? That you would not let shame and the sense, the lack of self-worth that we feel, many of it legitimate lack of self-worth because we've done things we're ashamed of. I just want to say to you right now, if you let that hold you back from turning your heart to God right now, you will miss out on the joy of the Father. So if you feel exiled, if you have lost that sense of home, man, I, I, I want you to get prayer today. We're going to have people up here for communion. Come, come get prayer. And the second thing is this. So that's younger brother, right? If you feel uh, you've been missing the forest for the trees in your relationship with God, like the kind of like grace-filled father that was described today is just not how God seems to you. Like the joy has been sucked out of your religious life. Uh, in fact, most of the time you're focused on the things that you are sacrificing, not the things that God has sacrificed, and you're pretty miserable. It's all duty. It's no delight. I think the invitation for you today is to enter into the joy of God. It's the same invitation, right? I think the question is, can you enter into joy when you are not the point of it? Do you hear that? Can you enter into joy when you are not the point of it? Can you enter into the joy of the Father because He is rejoicing in someone else? They get to come into the life. They get to come into the grace. Can you rejoice in that? I think that's God's invitation to many of us today. Mm. 
Jesus, thank you, God, that the invitation to the Christian life is an invitation into your joy. Rejoice with me. Can you hear it, guys? Rejoice with me. Rejoice with me. That's the invitation that God's inviting you into right now. God, help us see um, the mercy and the kindness of, of you yourself expanding over the earth, God. Help us to see the love of God poured out in the cross, Lord, over all the earth. God, help us to see the river of God flowing from heaven to earth right now for any to drink. God, would you mobilize us and make us the kind of people who our refrain becomes rejoice with me. We call people into the joy of God. God, Grant us repentance from our apathetic faith, God. Grant us repentance from not taking advantage of your kindness and goodness that you pour out on us in Jesus. God, forgive us for becoming disconnected from your love and grace in the earth. God, make us into people who are ambassadors of reconciliation. God, who are working with you in the earth, not working against you, not calling out other people's sins for the point to uh, condemn them. God, have mercy on us as a group of friends. God, grant our hearts repentance from these things. God, repentance from trusting in our own righteousness. Repentance from thinking that because we've done the right things, it means we've deserved your grace. It's a lie. God, your grace is fully and freely given outside of our performance. Thank you, Jesus. God, thank you for the manifold wisdom of God that stretches our brains and stretches our hearts and calls us into a greater joy than we can ever dream or imagine. There's no one like you, Jesus. No wisdom like yours. There's no love like yours, God. There's no mercy like yours. It stands above every other love, mercy, wisdom that we know of in this life. Thank you, God. You're worthy. I just want to give us an opportunity right now. If this picture of God as uh, someone who is full of grace and compassion and is moving towards you is new in your heart and mind right now, I want to give you a chance to respond to that. If, if you're not a Christian and you want to step in to this joy that we've been describing, I want to give you an opportunity, man. It's super easy. You just turn your heart towards God. You just say yes to what he's doing. And if you want to say yes today, you can do that right now today. And so you can come up here and pray with these people and they would love to pray with you about that struggle going on in your heart and life. And I just want to say to you that this reminder right now of that God is for me, he has compassion towards me and he's walking towards me is the reminder that I needed in my own heart and life. I don't keep showing up here because people are awesome. I know too many people, okay? I don't keep showing up here, but no, I keep showing up because I want to be close to a God like that. And I have a suspicion that he's at work, that he's doing things in this place in our hearts. Let's pray together and just ask him to continue doing what he's doing. Jesus, God, would you come and extend your ministry in this place amongst us? God, would you heal the sick? God, would you redeem um, the oppressed? God, would you um, extend your power um, to, to those who are oppressed by darkness? Kingdom of God, ministry of Jesus, would you come? Thank you, Lord. God, thank you that you give us a picture of yourself, that you're not in, uh, enthroned on rage towards us. Lord, you're enthroned on grace, enthroned in mercy, Lord. Thank you that this is who Jesus says you are. And God, we say, we believe, 
help our unbelief. We believe, help our unbelief, God. Thank you, Jesus.